Hello and welcome to this message from the river. We hope that this message from Pastor Billy Pate inspires and challenges you towards a greater relationship with Jesus Christ. Now let's join Pastor Billy Pate for another exciting message. You say come to the On Mother's Day, when I spoke, I talked a little bit about this, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so today, again, you know, after the death of Solomon, King Solomon, the kingdom split. We had the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the capital was Samaria. And we had the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, which was made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, with the capital being Jerusalem. And when the kingdom split, Hezekiah was the 13th king of that southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And he was considered the greatest king since King David. <clears throat> We're going to start read today in 2 Kings chapter 18, and it'll be on the screens for you if you want to follow along in your Bible, though you can turn there. 2 Kings 18, beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. And for until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he had, sorry, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Hezekiah dedicated himself to the cause of God. His father Ahaz, um, as with most of the kings of Judah before him, had turned their backs on God. They had allowed pagan worship. They had abandoned the law and abandoned the commandments of God. But Hezekiah did all that he could do to restore pure worship in the kingdom, worship in the temple. And so the primary focus of his initial reign was the war on idolatry. It was tearing down the high places. And you know, for years when I read that word idolatry or I, I would read about high places, I would think that it was more of a concept, a biblical concept, a, a one that was confound to that time period. But we see those very much today in our lives, idols and, t and high places. Now, we would never maybe construct an Asherah pole and pray to it. But we very much have idols and we very much have high places. These are things in our lives that distract us. They distract us from placing our trust in God. And anything that distracts us from placing our complete trust in God is an idol and ultimately worshiped at a high place. So while he was engaged in this spiritual war, there was also a physical war happening. Let's look at verse 9. It says, Now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel. So he's the northern kingdom king. And Hezekiah, remember, he is the southern kingdom. That Shalman, Shalmaneser, these are some names, y'all. 
king of Assyria came up against Samaria and besieged it. So he come up to the northern kingdom and besieges the northern kingdom. And at the end of three years, they took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. So the northern kingdom was taken. Then the king of Assyria carried away Israel, away captive to Assyria, and put them in Halah by the harbor, the river of Gozan, and in the city of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do them. It's a sad account that's happening in the north. One that Hezekiah is very much warring against in the south. He is obeying the voice of the Lord. He is working to obey the covenant that Moses has given. He's both hearing the word and doing the word. Both hearing the word and doing the word. Now look at verse 13. And in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. But Judah still came under attack. <sighs> Me too, Judah. Right? Me too, Judah. I'm grateful for stories like this in the Bible. Very grateful for stories. Hezekiah's father, he was an evil, awful man. He offered his children, his own children, as burnt sacrifices to the God of Melech in worship. He made himself a servant to the king of Assyria. He gifted him with treasury from the Lord's temple. He visited Damascus, then he came back and got the high priest of Israel, and he said, I want you to build me an altar like these pagan altars that they have, and they pulled the bronze altar out of the temple from before the Lord, and they put it in this pagan worship, this pagan altar, this pagan high place, and he would worship there. He was a wicked, evil man. And Hezekiah had dedicated himself to being nothing like his father. He followed God and he followed his commandments and he still came under attack. For too many years I missed the point that was being made here. Look again at verse 5. It says, He trusted in the Lord, he being Hezekiah, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor who were before him. The Hebrew transliteration for the word trusted is batak. It means what you think it means. It means to trust. But it's also understood as much more than that. It's also understood as confidence, security, bold, dependence. So we could read it like this. He, being Hezekiah, depended on the Lord, the God of Israel. Trust equals dependence. And we can't ask God to be trustworthy and in the same time not to want to live a life that is dependent upon Him. Trust equals dependence. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. He depended on the Lord. To be His means that I'm going to go through some things. Some things that are on the surface do not seem fair. Blake alluded to it this morning in worship. Some things happening right now within our families and within your families. I, we're not the only one. And you're not immune to it, and I'm not immune to it. From the surface, those things don't seem fair. But if I'm going to put my trust in Him, it's going to require that I depend on Him. And if I'm going to depend on Him fully, I cannot 
be put in a position to not depend upon him. If I want him to be trustworthy, then I have to depend on him. Trust equals dependence. Now, I probably should have my head examined. No, no amens from the front row here. But typically when you have this power being this microphone, you do not tell humiliating stories upon yourself. You tell them on other people because you have the power to do so. And they, I mean, nobody's going to like run the stage and yank the microphone out of your hand. But today I'm going to tell a story making a correlation of dependence upon myself, one that my husband would never tell because he's, too, he's been married nearly 25 years and he's too smart of a man to tell this story. Back when we were in college, um, well, Billy's entire life until his early 20s, his family owned a livestock auction. And um, we, when we were in college, for whatever reason, we built our college schedule to only go to school Tuesdays and Thursdays. We thought that was a smart thing because then we only had to go to school Tuesday and Thursday, but it was really an idiotic thing because that meant Monday, Wednesday, and Friday we worked at the livestock auction for free. And so it w there was a ton of different jobs. We, I've got, a, got one story I'll have to tell you all a different time carrying off some terrible carcasses but we would repair fence and we would feed animals and we would build pens and I know y'all are like shaking your head saying no she didn't yes I did I promise I did um, it was a different time then but um, yeah I'm wiser now um, so one of our tasks was to put out hay for the cattle and I was not strong enough to put out hay in the same way that Billy was strong enough to put out hay. He could just bend down with two hands and grab the two wires and thrust that hay right up onto the trough, cut the two wires and the hay would fall in. It was a beautiful picture. I was not strong enough to do that and so we did that together. I very much depended on him to be efficient in putting out hay. So what we would do is we'd get on each side of the hay bale, we would cut one wire, we would pick it up, lay it on the trough, cut the other wire, and let the hay fall in. And it worked fine. In that time of my life, I was a little mouthy. I know. I see the gasps. I, I see your, you, it's hard for you to imagine that, but something happened. Excuse me? Something happened one day, and Billy didn't do something right. I don't exactly know what it was. It doesn't necessarily matter, but I was mad. And I was just going to put hay out by myself. I did not need his help. And so I didn't just cut, you know, typically when I had to do it by myself, I cut both wires on the ground. And if you've ever seen hay bailed, once you do that and it begins to fall apart, it falls apart in chunks. And I would just throw those chunks into the trough. But this day, I decided that I was going to do it exactly like he did it because I didn't need him, and I could do this by myself. And so I walked into the pen. Have y'all ever been in a They are terrible housekeepers. That, it was covered in hay, manure, dirt, mud, muck, and mire. It was terrible. And so I walked into this pen. There's, he's near enough to see it because he still laughs about the sight. But I get behind that, hail, that bale of hay, one hand on one wire, one hand on the other wire. I'm going to use my hips, you know, use my legs. I can do this. 
get down. I am mad. I am so mad. I can do this. Grab this bale of hay and I thrust it up into the air. And then gravity does what gravity does. And that entire bale of hay comes flying back and hits me on the head. And into that terrible pen I fall. And my curls are all in all of that nasty. And I am bawling my eyes. I am madder. Oh, I am seeing red. I am so mad. Now, Billy was smart enough. I don't remember because I did see red and kind of blacked out for a while. If he was laughing, I don't remember it. So he's probably not because he's still alive. Um, there I laid. All of that. All that nastiness. All because I was going to show him that I didn't need him. I tell you all that story because I was very much in a position of dependence. I had a need that I was not able to meet by myself. I was not able to lift that load by myself. And there I was, sacrificing at the high place of self-reliance, making a point that I don't need you. I can do this. And it did not work out in my favor. It never works out in my favor. I'm not calling Billy Jesus in my story. I'm not going to do it. Y'all didn't hear it. I refuse to do it. There might be a strong correlation. But I want you to understand what I'm saying. That we have a need that we are unable to meet. And it doesn't matter how much gumption we have inside of us how mad we are, how determined we are, how much of a fighter we are, how much we want it. You have a need for a Savior. He didn't just save me. He is saving me every single day. Every day that I get up, He saves me, and I need Him every single day of my life. Billy shared with me a quote, and I'm going to butcher it, and he'll do it so much better, and I'm sure he'll do it if he hasn't already said it, but you've read that Jesus is my co-pilot but he read in a book that he is not my co-pilot, that he is driving the rescue vehicle and I am strapped on a stretcher in the back and he is saving my life a million times over. I have a need for him and you have a need for him. God wants to come through for me. He wants to shine through me. He wants to show his glory to this world in my story. Trust him. To trust Him means I must depend on Him. So let's take some time for some self-reflection. Consider this. Am I trusting God? What does trusting God look like? Are we willing to redefine trust? If you're like me, I've always seen trusting God from the vantage point of Him simply taking care of it. And most of the time, I've failed to see trusting God as my dependence on Him. That He was going to use my need for Him and work through my weakness in such a way that it was for my good and for His glory. He wants to do it for me. He wants to do it for you. And we're going to read about how he does it for Hezekiah. Now here's where I want to get to the meat of all of this and make our connection to the Holy Spirit in this series. We read in 
13 that he fortified the cities, that he built walls, he protected the cities of the kingdom of Judah. They were under Assyrian attack. And if we read on, we're going to see that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sends two of his officials to drive fear into the heart of the people of Judah. And they have this whole scary conversation at the wall. The Jewish leaders ask these Assyrians, can we speak in Aramaic? They say that because only the Jewish leaders and the Assyrians understand Aramaic. And the Assyrians, no, we're going to speak in Hebrew. They want to drive fear into everyone under the sound of their voice. They insist on speaking in Hebrew. And so when all of this comes back to Hezekiah, we pick up our account. This time it'll be in 2 Chronicles 32. It'll be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. It says, When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. Thus many people gathered together who stopped, all, who stopped all the springs of the brook that ran through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? In preparation for this impending attack, King Hezekiah reroutes the Gihon Spring by way of tunnel into the city of Jerusalem. We're going to put a slide up here because this is, this is crazy. The top of this blue squiggle, is showing this Siloam tunnel. Notice the shape. It's kind of, kind of like an S, maybe. You got that poke out there and this one down here. It's kind of like an S. Let me, let me tell you about that. We could spend a lot of time talking about this tunnel and Hezekiah constructing this tunnel. Constructing. It winds from the Gihon Spring about a, th- a third of a mile down to the pool of Siloam. In a rush to build the tunnel, it was dug by two teams, each starting at opposite ends. So one team starts at the top, one team started at the bottom. The tunnel itself is 1,750 feet long, with a total height difference between the two ends of one foot. Engineers today still don't understand how they did that without any type of modern technology. They dug a tunnel underground to meet in the middle to reroute the Gihon Spring into the city and bring them water into the Pool of Siloam. In the natural here, the story makes perfect sense. The Gihon Spring was Jerusalem's main source of water. They could not have survived if they didn't have access to that spring. So for safety's sake, the king fortifies the city. He, brings, he builds walls. He builds the large wall, the broad wall, stored away provisions. He ordered that the waters be diverted underground in this tunnel and brought into the pool of Siloam. As long as the people had a connection to water, living water, they could live. Without water, the fortified city was worthless. Food, food provisions meant nothing. And while it's true in the natural, it's true in the spiritual. Water equals life. Pastor said at the first week of this series that everywhere the river river flows, life abounds. Everywhere the river flows, life abounds. The people of Judah needed the river. Their very lives depended on it, and the same is true for you and I today. Our spiritual lives depend on this source. There is a spiritual remedy for every spiritual need. 
And we have access to them through the Spirit. The gospel in its most simplistic form, we find it in John 7. Pastor quoted it to us this morning. Verse 37 says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Everything meaningful in this life, anything of real substance hangs on that statement. He is our source. But what will be the result? 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. God is never satisfied with just filling our thirst. He desires that we're not only filled, but full to running over. Get this. He looks at you subjectively and he says, what can I do for you? And then he looks at you objectively and says, what can I do through you? What can I do for you? And it doesn't stop there. What can I do through you? We can't drink once in the natural and be satisfied. It wasn't enough for Hezekiah to have the people run and fill up pots of water and bring them in behind that walled city and store them up. Eventually, they would have run out. There is one area of humanity that never remains satisfied, always demanding more. In the natural, we have an endless need for water. And in the spiritual, we have an endless need for living water. Looking at verse 39, I'm going to read it to you in the New King James, which is what I've been reading from this morning. But on the screen, I want to display it to you in both the New King James at the top and in the King James at the bottom. And I just want to make a point to you. Verse 39 says, coming off of 38, that he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Then looking at 39. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Notice the parentheses. It's basically the almost word for word the same exact thing between the New King James and the King James. But the King James, the older translation here, it puts those parentheses. Do you see those? This is John's personal commentary. As he writes his gospel, he has an advantage of years and of hindsight. And I'm sure that when he stood there and he heard Jesus say those words, he probably wondered, what is he talking about? But later, when he received the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, he said, this is what he was talking about. This is what he was talking about. And so maybe you're here today and you don't, you don't have that joy, that fullness, that feeling of the Holy Spirit. And you're saying, what are they talking about? You must experience it to experience it. And then you'll say, this is what they were talking about. Blake, if you'll come. Hezekiah fortified the city. He built his wall. He rerouted the Gihon Spring to the Pool of Siloam. He refused to surrender. And we read on in his account that in a single night, the entire Assyrian army, almost 200,000 men, were struck, struck dead by the angel of the Lord. I'm grateful that Hezekiah trusted the Lord. But I want to read you a short passage of a man with a deeper appreciation for his faithfulness. Found in John 9. 
Beginning in verse 1, it says, And Jesus passed by. He saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay with the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. And the neighbors, therefore, and the neighbors, therefore, and they which before him said that he was blind. I'm sorry, the neighbors therefore and they which before him had seen him that he was blind said, is this not he that sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him, but he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, how were thine eyes opened? And he said, a man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and received sight. In other words, this nameless man at the debt of Hezekiah is saying, You must experience him to experience him. If you'll stand with me and bow your heads in this place. I'm just going to make a declaration for all of us that today we're going to allow God to redefine trust. This morning as I was praying and looking over all this, I just, I, I know, but even beyond what I know, I believe that we have a number of people listening, maybe listening online, listening on a podcast, who feel bullied by life. And like Hezekiah, we're doing all the right things, everything that we know to do, and yet we are still under attack. Maybe you feel attacked in your mind. You're having a hard time finding rest and finding peace. Maybe you've been attacked in your health and you're facing sickness and disease. Maybe it's a financial attack and you're just scraping by, working to make ends meet. Or maybe for you it's an, a, a relational attack and you feel very alone and very isolated. And I just feel like God is asking you and He's asking me to redefine trust. To quit questioning the fairness of it all. It takes our focus on the complete wrong things. And so today, God, we're going to quit questioning the fairness of it all.
We hope you have enjoyed and been encouraged by this message. We would love for you to join us at the river on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Sunday school and at 10.30 for morning worship. We also provide our midweek service for all ages on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. If you would like to support the various ministries at the river, please go to our giving tab. These cursed memories we would love for you to visit us at 1110 South Preston Street, Burkrenet, Texas. And as always, we encourage you to come experience life with us at the river.